you know, my girlfriend asked me, she says, oh, are you doing the one with the, the guy from Georgia the Jungle? I was like, no. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So uh, this week, with the big new release being uh, 2017's version of The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise and Sofia Boutella, uh, we are taking a look not at what apparently a lot of people online think is the original, which is the Brendan Fraser 1999 version, but the actual original from 1932, uh, starring Boris Korloff. Um, and so we're looking at The Mummy and Devotion. And to do that, I have a return guest. Um, I have Jason from the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. So thank you for being here, Jason. Thank you for, well, kind of inviting me. I, I, I invited myself. <laughs> I, like, I want to come <laughs> back. I was like, fine. That's great. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, take it easy. You're on the list, crybaby. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, and if you, uh, if you like this episode and you want to hear more of Jason, you can, of course, check out his podcast or uh, check out his uh, previous uh, previous appearance uh, on this show when we covered, what did we cover, Jason? What was What was that movie? The Imitation yes, Game. Yes, The Imitation Game. So check check that episode out as well. But uh, before we kind of get into things, why don't you tell people about your podcast and where they can listen to it online? Yep. Uh, so as Dave said, my name is Jason Michael from the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. That's a podcast I co-host with uh, Lee Brady. Uh, we do film reviews, uh, but we tend to get a little more analytical. Uh, so we're on a break right now, uh, but we're gearing up for our third season to get set to begin in July. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and uh, that's it. the big highlights of our second season have been our episodes on Under the Skin, Fate of the Furious, and most recently Alien Covenant, um, all of which have received uh, really great reviews and have consistently broken the amounts of downloads we've received week on week. We're actually really surprised by this, so thanks to everyone for tuning in. Or We're always looking forward to having new listeners and feedback on that, so yeah. Dave has been one of our, our biggest cheerleaders, too. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that uh, your your podcast uh, consistently has been one of my – every time you release an episode, it's been one of my favorites to listen to. Uh, so I would highly recommend uh, people tune in, especially if they want a podcast that takes kind of a deeper dive into movies, not just like, I liked it or I didn't and here's why. But, like, let's really analyze what might be going on in this movie. So definite, definite high recommend from me. All right, uh, so before we dive into the, the psychology, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? All right. So when you told me that the theme was going to be devotion, I I figured devotion is such a loose term that you can basically lump any film into the theme and have something interesting show up. And so my mind immediately went to Star Wars. You know, General Mahdi. Shocking. Your, your, <laughs> yeah, your sad devotion to that ancient religion hasn't helped you conjure up the Death Star plan. So you could look at Darth Vader's devotion to the Force and it'd be an area fit to explore. You'll have also, if you want to, Mickey Rourke's character, Marvin Sin City, and his devotion to Goldie, House of Cards, you know, Frank and Claire's devotion to each other. Uh, but the films that I really wanted to talk about more is uh, uh, Francis Ha, mm. Noah Baumbach's film. 
And it acts twofold. Uh, you'll have Greta Gerwig's character, Frances, and her devotion to her friend, uh, to ballet, and this life that she's desperately trying to cling to, but also Noah Baumbach's uh, devotion to cinema in its purest form, and namely as a tribute to the French New Wave, especially the works of Jean-Luc Godard. So in terms of devotion, I thought that was cool. And one that's like really like that wears devotion like on its sleeves would be Gladiator. And it's devotion mm. to family and also to the Roman Empire, you know, to Marcus Aurelius. So those would be the recommendations I had. I had Paris, Texas in there as well. And Milnil's Sunrise, The Song of Two Humans. So there's a list uh, if you guys want to <laughs> go in and watch that. But the two that they wanted me to mention, well, Francis Ha and Gladiator would be the ones. Yeah, nice. Yeah, those two definitely definitely apply. And never did I think on a show people would recommend Francis Ha and Gladiator side by side. So that's kind of cool. But I think <laughs> but I think devotion definitely fits into both of those. Awesome. All right. Uh, so we are going to take a quick break. Uh, I will talk about devotion in terms of psychology, and then we'll bring Jason back to talk about the mummy. Shannon. CG. Lauren. And Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, hi everyone. So it's time for the psychology section. So today, as we mentioned earlier, with The Mummy from 1932, we're talking about devotion. And it's interesting, if you look at... The definition of devotion, it's not what you think, because I think of the second definition, which is the act of dedicating something to a cause, enterprise, or activity, or the fact or state of being ardently de dedicated and loyal. But actually, the first definition is religious fervor, an act of prayer or private worship, or religious exercise or practice other than the regular worship of a congregation. And it's interesting, if you look at someone who's truly devoted, like our main character in this film, like the mummy, there is kind of a religious fervor to it. There is kind of this extra layer. Um, it's not just like I'm connected to this person, I want to be with this person, but I must be with this person beyond all others. So really what we're talking about is a fixation. Uh, and I think that's what our mummy character has on his on his mate. It's just he is willing to go to any lengths to be with her. And devotion has a positive connotation, but it's not always a positive thing. Okay, so one other thing I wanted to define really quickly. I doubt it will come up later, but it's just something that's kind of interesting. We may do, if I'm really gutsy, I may do an episode on this in the future, and it's called psychical inertia. So this is a term that was, that was introduced by Carl Jung, which describes our psyche's resistance to development and change. He, consider, he considered it one of the main reasons for what he called neurotic opposing or shrinking from appropriate tasks in life. Now, Freud argued that psychic inertia played a part in the lives of, of the normal people as well as the neurotic people and saw its origins in fixation between early instincts and first impressions of, signif of significant objects. As late as a, a book he wrote called Civilization and Its Discontents, he considered this a major obstacle to cultural development. He said the inertia of the libido is di its disinclination to give up an old position for a new one. Later Jungians have seen psychic inertia as a force of nature reflecting both internal and outer determinants, while others have seen it as the product of social pressures, especially in relation to aging. So we're expected to do certain things, we're expected to act certain ways, and 
that expectation can be really difficult and it forces us into these situations we're not really happy with. So if you're going through psychical inertia, which our main character might be, uh, we don't really get a lot of insight into into his uh, into his kind of psychological well-being, but there are definitely changes that are happening to him um, as we go through in his flashbacks that he is like, nope, I am not doing that. I'm staying right here. And he refuses to move forward, which, you know, kind of ends in his death in his first life. Okay, so I want to really quickly go over one article um, before we move on. And this one is about psychological burden, uh, cohesion, devotion, and depression of people who are caregivers for people with dementia. Uh, and this is from Yoon in 2003. So basically the background of this is if dementia caregivers have a good adaptability within the family, good cohesion, and a good amount of devotion, the burden on the caregiver and their own depressive symptomatology is going to be reduced. So the study was looking at studying about the relationship among the family adaptability, cohesion, and devotion of caregivers and caregiver depression. They were also they also wanted to study caregiver burden to affect and how it affects the neuropsychiatric symptoms of, symptoms of dementia, the depression, and individual burden on the caregiver. So what they did is they got a bunch of data from several questionnaires, the Beck Depression Inventory, the Family Adaptability and Cohesion Evaluation Scale, the Family Devotion Scale, the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Questionnaire, and the Burden Interview. And they did this in nursing facilities and hospitals and other organizations like that. And basically, and basically what they found is that dementia caregivers' depression is associated with the level of family cohesion and devotion. So if you are devoted to that person and your family has a, is a tight, tight unit um, then your your depression symptoms or are going to be worse. So you're going to have less of a burden from taking care of these people. The, the results also show that the neuro, neuropsychiatric symptoms of dementia and caregiver's depression can affect the caregiver's burden. So of course, like the worse off the person is, the harder it is on the caregiver. But really the important point to take here is this is a positive of devotion. If you are devoted to this person you're taking care of, then you are much less likely to develop psychiatric symptoms like depression. All right, so the next thing we're going to look at is from Psychology Today, and this is from Dr. Ben Zeev, um, who wrote an article called I Am Not Hopelessly Devoted to You, and talking about the idea that love and romantic devotion should not be blind. Now, he states at the beginning that devotion to a person we love is an essential virtue in romantic relationships, uh, like you have to have it, but also goes on to question, like, but is that all positive? So you shouldn't be hopelessly devoted to a person. And he actually quotes Olivia Newton-John, of all people. So um, so he's trying to discuss and trying to distinguish between one-sided, passive, and unconditional devotion, that hopeless devotion, and a dynamic, conditional, reciprocal devotion. Like, you can count on me and I can count on you. Now, if you're hopelessly devoted, this, this looks at ideal love as in un uncompromising, comprehensive, inflexible, unconditional. So basically it's not affected by the world. It's not affected by reality. Like no matter what they do, no matter what I do, I will be devoted to them and they will be devoted to me, which is a really, really un unhealthy way to look at this. So there's a lack of control. There's no responsibility and there's no reasoning. There's no logic involved. So this actually becomes like not a genuine loving relationship when you're that devoted. And he actually brings up religion. He says, you know, being hopelessly devoted can be a suitable attitude towards God, because if you are a believer, those activities are not to be questioned. Your God is a perfect God, but this is not the same. This is not the same with people, with relationships. So if you're going to be devoted in a reciprocal way, it's actually really responsible and sensitive. 
uh, the person in the relationship, they do their best not to hurt the person they love and make them happy. So it's not blind. It's, again, reciprocal. So because hopefully if you're in a situation love is not blind, romantic devotion shouldn't be blind either. Each person will have characteristics that their partner will love and others, and he writes that they're not as attractive, but really, you know, there's going to be some, some characteristics that you flat out don't like or hate in that person. But you're looking at them as a whole person, so it becomes this complex task, and it has a lot of responsibility. You're not just dividing a person into a pro and con list. Well, I like nine things about them, and I dislike seven, so I guess I'll stay with them. That's not the way devotion works, because it's a constant changing dynamic situation. So devotion, like reciprocity, he writes, is crucial to romantic relationships, but devotion should not be hopelessly blind. So then he ends it with a quote. He said, the above considerations can be put in the following statement that a lover might express. You know that sometimes I treat you like God. For example, I never use Google when you're around because I feel that you know everything. But our love has nothing to do with hopelessness, but with ongoing growth. My love to you will not die because I'm not blindly devoted to you. So I know, like me, not everyone is going to relate to this because there's a lot of God talk whenever you talk about devotion. But it's the idea that it's dynamic and changing, that like you're going to have enough respect for that person that if they tell you something, you're not going to immediately doubt it and go check on it for them. Like, let, let me see if they're right. I'm not sure if I really buy that. But I don't have perfect faith that everything they say is true and everything they say is on point. Otherwise, I would be hopelessly devoted. And I would rather be devoted in a way that we work together with one another rather than I believe absolutely everything you say and everything you say is golden and perfect. So I think really the most important thing when we talk about devotion is that like most things, devotion is neither completely positive or completely negative. I think we have a romantic idea of devotion. I think this is the perfect movie to talk about the romantic idea of devotion. I mean, this is a man who gives up everything for the love of his life, you know, and even risks not only his life, but his afterlife in order to be devoted to her. And I think at some level, especially when we're younger, we always, we want that devotion. We want someone who would do anything for us, who would be there for us no matter what, no matter what mistakes we made, no matter how angry they were with us, they would always be there for us. But there's a danger there too, because I think when people aren't, when they're that devoted to you, to a person, to anyone, then they're not seeing that person. They're seeing the ideal that they built up of that person instead. And then you're not allowed to be human. You're not allowed to see your faults, your foibles, your mistakes. Because if I make a big mistake and my partner thinks everything I do is good, they're not even going to see it as a mistake. They're going to see it as, well, that's obviously the way things should be, the way things should be, because that's the way Dave did it. And that's the person I love. And that is, I mean, one, very not healthy and can lead to really unhealthy relationships, can lead to, you know, obsession with people and stalking and violence. If, if those if those things are betrayed, then you can be in kind of a lot of trouble on both sides of that relationship. But it also isn't isn't allowing that person that you are, quote unquote, devoted to. It's not allowing them to be a real human being, a real person, because I think our, our mistakes are what guide us. Our mistakes are what make us better people in the end. Because if we don't go through any struggle and we are told all, our entire lives that everything we do is right, then we're never learning and we're never growing. And that's really, I mean, to me anyway, that's really the point of life is to learn and grow and change and be better. And honestly, if you're that devoted to that person, then 
you're not you're also not living your own life you're not you're not being yourself because you are so fixated and focused on that person and that is definitely not a healthy life decision all right so that's it for our psychological section uh when we come back we'll bring uh jason back to talk about 1932's the mummy watched the movie check popped the popcorn check sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows i'm home check and double check I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I <laughs> didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. So we're back to actually talk about the movie. So we're back to talk about The Mummy from 1932. So I'm going to talk a little bit before we kind of really get into it about our history with this movie. So this was a first-time watch for me, but I found it really interesting because The Mummy is something that's such a part of the cultural lexicon that even if you haven't seen it, you feel like you've seen it. And I'm trying to figure out why, right? Like it became like, I mean, I think I knew it more than anything as a kid as like a, a Halloween costume, right? Like you, that's, that's what you, that's, what you, that's what I think of when I think of the mummy. And I realized the only version before the kind of Brendan Fraser version I had ever seen was like, uh, my dad was a huge Abbott and Costello fan and they had a movie called Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, uh, which of course is very funny, very tongue in cheek. Not, I mean, this and nothing, really nothing like the original mummy, but that was my, that was my kind of my, my first foray into, into this world. So it's interesting that we can never see a monster movie or a movie like this and still feel like, oh, but I still know what that is. Um, but I think this movie definitely, Definitely was not what I expected, and I don't mean that as as an insult in any way. We'll we'll get into like what I think about the movie and what what I don't. But it, you know, I thought of this as a pure monster movie, and it's definitely not that. There's, I think there's no, there's more substance to it. Uh, so it's really interesting, kind of going in with that perspective, and then having it totally flipped on me as I watched the movie. Uh, but what about you? What's your history with the Mummy? You know, I hadn't thought about this at all. And right now, as you were talking, I'm trying to piece together my history with the mummy. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the film, you know, uh, Freund's film from 1932, I remember watching this most likely in, in my 20s. And I'd probably rent like uh, ran out of stuff to rent at the video store. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm there now. I got to watch these these B monster movies from the 30s, you know, so Dracula and Frankenstein and. Uh, the other one, Ghoul of the I don't remember what, and the Mummy was in there as well. <laughs> I think my introduction to the Mummy is probably the same thing as you. you know, Halloween, maybe Scooby Doo episodes. Oh, uh, good call. Was probably the place yes. where I would have probably seen that would be in the Scooby Doo episodes when Shaggy and Scooby are just like, oh my god, and you see this trail of, of you know, just the bandages, you know, and they're trying to find out who the hell that was. But yeah, I don't know, man. I I I don't 
seen it's always just been part of my life ever since i'm a kid so halloween's probably the first place you know you have that one kid show up like dressed up in toilet paper rolls yep school during the halloween <laughs> thing so so that was it and then scooby-doo then probably this is probably that you know going into the movie in, in my 20s so this was a second second viewing for me of the mummy i appreciated this one much more than the first time i watched it although i did like it the first time as well all right, excellent. So let's so let's move in move into the direction you mentioned the director Freund, uh, which is I think as I was looking up, this was his first his first film he directed, uh, and I think he was the, actually the cinematographer on Dracula. Um, so he definitely had his roots in in this type of film in this you know. And now we're moving into this world of you know Universal is rebooting all their monsters and trying to kind of recreate what they had during this period of time. Um, so in general, what did you think of his direction here? Him being a first time director, I really thought he knew what he was doing. It was um, yeah. I thought it was a really well shot film. And you said like he's the he was the direct he was the uh, cinematographer on uh, Dracula, but he was also a cinematographer on Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Oh, right. And so I mean, you're working with Lang on Metropolis. You you're clearly in good hands, so you're picking up as you go along. And so I really, you know, I, I like the way that he uses close up shots in the film. You know, especially the close up shots of Karloff's face. Oh my you god! Know, there are three yes. instances in the film. But I think that that might have actually inspired guys like Jonathan Deming to use it in The Silence of the Lambs, like mm -hmm. on Anthony Hopkins' face. And also the other one that came to mind was the closing shot of Psycho with Hitchcock, mm -hmm. you know, when he goes in onto, um, onto um, Norman Bates' face, you know, to have that very menacing type look. And even with Bates, you know, looking like that skull at the end, you know, when he had mm -hmm. just that, that little cross dissolve. I mean, in The Mummy, when you look at it very carefully, the way that the lighting is and how he shoots that close-up shot of Karloff's face, it actually does look like a skull. And so I really thought that his staging of those close-up shots was fantastic. But also, I like how he used the in the, uh, I think, the opening sequence when we actually see The Mummy. Well, we kind of almost see The Mummy for the first time, just panning across the room, you know, basically not showing The Mummy. I thought that was a really fun moment of suspense so yeah i think that even if it looked a little bit more like a theater or stage play i think it was sure. typical of that time but i mean it made he he made the mummy his own when you compare it to something like dracula you know you could see that he has a little bit more of a masterful eye when it comes to camera work and whatnot so yeah i i thought he was great he did a great job on this yeah i agree uh i agree with a lot of what you said there there are definitely moments in here where this feels more like a stage play than a movie mm -hmm. i think some of that is attributable to the, the fact that it's 1932 uh i think that yeah. was kind of the dominant the dominant art form at the time so it makes sense mm -hmm. but i think if it's it's an interesting film if you look at it with these these bookends because I think the very beginning and the very end of this film are not like stage plays at all. Uh, but the middle, no, 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 the middle, the like mm -hmm. middle hour because this movie is only I think like seventy three minutes long. This is this is the great thing about movies from the thirties. Sometimes you find these movies you're like yeah. an hour and seventeen minutes. This is great. Uh, but these bookends are very cinematic and especially that opening scene you were talking about. I just think he was an expert at building tension like that scene. Oh yeah. Man. Like I watched it. I watched it twice in the last couple of weeks and I was riveted during that scene because he knows the movie's called the mummy. He knows that's what you want to see. So he's going to withhold in that first 10 minutes. Like, you know that that mummy is there in the background. You And especially 
especially watching it now when we've seen all these movies about the curse of the mummy and we, we know it's going to happen. We know the mummy mm-hmm. is going to come to life and some bad things are going to happen or we assume some bad things are going to happen. Um, so we know he knows that's what we want to see. So he kind of he kind of hides it from us and the camera slowly kind of pans over at the end of that scene. And we we see the, the eyes kind of slowly flutter open. And it's just it's masterful. And it's something I think in a lot of ways, a technique that has been lost. Like, I think we there's there's more of an urge to do uh, to do what Wes Craven has done in his films, which is and he's been quoted about this, how you scare him at the beginning and then you can get away with as much character development in the first act as as you want to. So instead, this movie takes 15 minutes for the mummy to wake up like we have all this talk about, you know, this great find and this and oh, don't open that. We're going to go outside. We're going to talk about it then until it finally happens. And it's so rewarding. And I think the. The camera work in that scene, it's just so impressive. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes if you don't watch a lot of older films, you have this idea in your head about like, oh, well, we're so much better at these things now. We have so many more techniques, blah, blah, blah. But like there is something so raw and so riveting about this this opening 10 to 15 minutes. And I just adore it. Oh, definitely. I, I'm I agree with you 100%. And I mean, I caught myself – just to show how good he is, you know, even in cinematography, but in directing this, you know, you're usually when you're watching movies from the 30s, uh, your eye tends to wander a little bit because mm-hmm. everything is in deep focus most of the time, you know. So you you're, you catch yourself looking at different parts of the screen. I mean, if you look at like the old Scarface film, you know, Harold Hawks films, uh, and, and even like if we go back to Dracula and Frankenstein – you constantly are having a wandering eye. You're trying to figure out, oh, well, you know, we understand this is dialogue seems a little bit on the nose, so I'll check and see what's <laughs> going on in the background. Yeah. But I mean, that opening scene, you, he, he really, Frond is really able to guide the eye. Exactly. And I think that's really fun because I caught myself watching it this time going, I know that I'm not going to see the mummy, but I caught myself trying to peer off screen just yep. to see if I could get a glimpse of where the <laughs> hell that guy's going. So it, was, it, it is, it's really, really cool that he knows exactly where the people are going to be looking and he, he tries to keep your gaze focused on one specific place all the time and he knows exactly what he's doing. So yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's something I didn't think of, but as you were kind of talking, I was just like, found myself nodding and agreeing like you do when you watch a lot of these old films. Like there's not, sometimes there's not as much technique, but this, the way he uses his camera here really does guide your eye into looking at what he wants you to look at. And it actually, it's interesting because it, like you mentioned, kind of peering off screen, it can actually get the tiniest bit frustrating because you're like, I just want to see two inches to the right. Will you just move that damn camera? I want to see the mummy. And it totally, and it kind of plays into the fact that this, this movie is not what you expect it to be uh, at all. Walking into a quote unquote monster movie. Uh, And you also mentioned that repeated shot of Boris Karloff's face and I mean the way it's lit and the way it just kind of lingers there I mean it's haunting like even now like with all the all the special effects and all the lighting techniques we have now like this those I think it happens like three or four times in the movie and every single time it's like it's like a jolt uh, because you're just not, you're just not quite prepared for an extreme close up, um, of his face with the makeup, which we'll talk about later. But I just, yeah. I love, I, I, he doesn't overdo it and he doesn't, he doesn't like overstay his welcome in those sequences. Cause I think if he does this one or two more times as an audience, we're like, okay, we get it. He's evil. Yeah. Can we fucking move on now? And it never gets to that point. And I think, 
I think he also is really good at knowing when to leave a scene. And of course, some of that is the way the film's written, but like there's so much melodrama uh between our other characters once you get rid of you know once you're not looking at the mummy like all the other sequences are well done but they are melodramatic and if you stay too long there as well especially for a modern audience it could get tough but i think i think he knows exactly when it's hit that too much point oh yeah definitely i mean i i wouldn't have taken an extra shot of that because like you said, I mean, you're getting it. It's a, it's an intense stare down, mm-hmm. you know? So it's an imposing figure. And I, we, I mean, we've only watched it. We, we haven't seen this on a huge cinema screen, right? Right. So just imagine how imposing Oof. that was at the time in a movie theater. On this giant screen. Karloff's, yeah. Exactly. Karloff's really razor sharp traits, you mm-hmm. know, that jawline, those eyebrows that are sticking out. And, and you're just looking at this face and I, I could just imagine being in the theater going like, can you please stop looking right. at the way that you're looking at me? <laughs> On this 40 like foot it. screen, get away. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it kind of gives you the impression that it might've actually been mesmerizing for an audience as well. They might've actually been taken in by that and feel as threatened as the people that it's actually happening to, you know, mm-hmm. his weird curse that he's doing at that moment in time. So I think that imposing that on the audience, you know, that's why I brought up silence of the lambs. Mm-hmm. It was something that was menacing and terrifying. And if you're going to have a monster movie, that's more in line with a romantic story, but people are there to see the monster. I think that's the best way to show how horrific that guy can be right. is by imposing it on the audience that way. Yeah. And I think especially given the time and kind of the lack of special effects that were available. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the 1999 version and probably the 2017 version. I haven't seen them. I'm oh, really? Oh, they're, they're oh, good yeah. fun. They're a good time. I actually would have. I don't, it's my girlfriend asked me. You know, my girlfriend asked me, she says, oh, are you doing the one with the the guy from George of the Jungle? I was like, no. <laughs> I'm sure that's how he loves that, that he's you know, referred like, to. <laughs> the guy from George of the Jungle. Oh, poor Brendan Fraser. Yeah, those are, I mean, just a little, like, uh, a, a little point. Those movies are a lot of fun, but probably have more in common with Indiana Jones uh, than they do with, right. with monster movies. But they're a really good time. I actually was going to cover that, but I've already covered it on this show. So, uh, can't, can't, oh, can't do I'll the original mummy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think you're right. I think there's, uh, I, I actually now really kind of wish I could see this on a giant screen now that you've said that. Oh, yeah, like man. that, that would be a really kind of incredible shot to see, to see on a giant screen. Uh, but like, as I was saying, you know, with the, the lack of special effects that are, that are out there, he, he really takes advantage of um of the acting here which is where we'll move to now and boris karloff of course probably best known uh for playing frankenstein uh which will always have a special place in my heart it's one of the first movies i ever remember watching uh my dad was a huge fan of it so like frankenstein holds that holds that place so it's really interesting to see this again this imposing figure uh on screen in a totally different role um and i was really impressed with boris karloff here like there's so much I think uh, sometimes when we watch newer movies, we're wowed by nonverbal performances. And I think that's an art form that has been lost a little bit. And there's, there's mm. plenty of lines he has here, but like, I think his most, uh, his most impressive moments are silent and the way he holds himself and the way he takes all of this so seriously, like all the moments when he's cursing people and, and doing his evil deeds, <laughs> yeah. like most of that is without dialogue. And it's so, it's so impressive because you're, even though you know it's silly and it's over the top and 
There's these moments in these older movies where things are very presentational, but you are right there with it. And like you, you believe it in that moment. Um, yeah. I mean, if you compare Karloff to the rest of the cast, he is clearly a step above. Oh, yeah. In terms of what he's bringing to this performance, because at no moment did I think, Oh, this is evil. I was like, yeah kill this motherfucker because <laughs> I really I was I was so invested in what he was doing as an actor I, I just couldn't help myself I was actually a lot more empathetic towards the mummy uh, or Ardeth the Bay if you will I I just really really enjoyed this I mean everything that he was doing just that I noticed that his posture was very different he mm-hmm. didn't stand up straight he actually had his his head leaning forward just a little bit because Karloff he, well, I, I, if I remember correctly, he was tall, but he wasn't that tall. He's usually wearing some form of high heel right. you know, to have him towering over the rest of the people. And so I really thought in this case it worked to his advantage because he had this – how could I put it? His performance of being above it all mm-hmm. actually goes into how tall he was according to the people. You know, He's always staring down at them. So he is this imposing figure. And so – I don't know. Just the expressionless face was so cool. Mm-hmm. And then when you have that flashback scene, you'll have him more of, of a, how could I put it? You can see that he's trying to get a little bit more emotional when it comes mm-hmm. to him telling the story to Helen. And when she's, um, oh, what's her name? I can't even say it. Uh, Akhesh and Amon or whatever <laughs> the princess's name is from um, from uh, when, uh, ancient Egypt. And so, you know, you could tell that he's actually really, really in love with this woman. So, I mean, to be able to pull off those two distinct performances just shows just how much of a master Karloff was and how much faith Frond had in mm-hmm. his capabilities. So, yeah, definitely. I think Karloff really, really does an amazing job in this one. Yeah, I think the only reason for me the film suffers, it's weird. It's because of his performance, but because, as you mentioned, it's so much better than everything else around him. Like, he is acting circles around everyone else in this movie. Everyone else in this movie, it's it's not that it's bad. It's just standard. Uh, it's kind of what you would like. Okay. These are the romantic leads and these are the, the older, wiser characters. Like there's, there's not a lot that really stands out, at least in a good way. I mean, there are some, there are some moments, uh, from Helen, from Zeta Johan or Johan that, uh, that are a bit rough to watch. Like they're so, they're so presentational and they're so, so melodramatic that I'm just like, oh man, this is, if, if he didn't care about you, I wouldn't care about you. So I found it like really hard to access any of these other characters. And I think, I think the way the movie's set up, it, you're, it's supposed to be a difficult decision. It's supposed to be a balance between like who I'm rooting for. Like, am I rooting for the mummy or am I rooting for these people? And if anything, right. you should be more rooting for these people because he is, you know, he is the, the mummy has done some terrible things. He's killing people left and right. And you should be rooting for these young lovers. But like you, I think I found myself rooting for, rooting for Ardeth Bay instead because he was so, he had so much charisma on screen and really no one else did. Yeah, I mean, but uh, like my my biggest disappointment was David Manners. They're all dead now, so we can talk shit yeah, as much perfect. as we want. So the the hero David Manners, Ugh. you know, he plays uh what Frank Wemple. Mm-hmm. Um he was pretty damn bad. And just to show how bad he was, they actually set him up as being kind of a uh, of um of a douchebag a little bit. <laughs> you know, his father dies and all is it, all it takes is Dr. Muller telling him that Helen might be interested, so the potential oh? to get laid <laughs> Yes. Immediately takes his 
mine off his dad's death. I was like, that's a little bit precipitated and he can't pull it off. You know, it's like, oh, your father was such a good man. But I saw your reaction to the woman and he's like, oh, yeah, this is ter- Oh, she's interested. Well, shit, you know, fuck dad. You know, dad's dead now. I can't do anything anymore. <laughs> it's time to but move on. Like could get laid. Yeah, exactly. It's time to move on. I- Helen, she's hot. Yeah. But um, Helen was was OK. I, I thought that, you know, uh, Zita, uh, Johan or Johan was was OK. I mean, it's very uneven. Yes. You know? And the one thing that I found was distracting, and this is just me, so you guys can call me out for it as much as you want, as I kept calling her Drew Barrymore. Ooh. She looked exactly A little like bit. Drew I could see that. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck is Drew Barrymore doing in this movie? <laughs> and why is Ardeth Bay interested in Drew Barrymore? So the entire movie, I had my dumb brain just going like Drew Barrymore is acting <laughs> really bad in this movie. <laughs> And so, one of Drew Barrymore's worst to, performances, The Mummy in 1932, exactly. yes. So I don't know. It was just so weird because I was trying to make it fun for me to just see like, you know, like the melodrama, just the overacting and then the underacting and then the overacting. Yes. I was like, Jesus Christ, can you just put it a little bit in the center yeah, there? Yeah, just find some consistency. Yeah. I think also like there's there's these moments where she is under his spell and those are just so – Melodramatic isn't even the right word because I I don't think melodrama is necessarily a negative, but her performance in those scenes is like is like a child who's never acted before. Like, what is it like to be <laughs> to be in a haze? Do that, and then there's these segments near the end where she has to become an Oxana Moon, uh, right. and that's not convincing either. Like, they just put her in some you know a different wig and they kind of move on, and she hasn't changed her performance at all. Like, there's she's right. still it looks like she is Helen playing an Egyptian instead of now an Egyptian inhabiting Helen's body. Like it's just, it's not convincing. And that's a shame because like we are at that point, you and me both are rooting for the mummy. And we we want to see that relationship because we kind of see in that flashback, how much he cares about her, you know? And then we just, and we get nothing back from anyone except Boris Karloff. Exactly. And I mean, even as, as much as I, I, I kind of liked her in specific scenes. I remember the scene just after um, uh, Ardeth Bay or Imhotep shows who she was in the past life that, that 3,700 years ago. She goes back to see Frank and the reaction she has is genuine. I thought it was cool. Mm. You know, like he, he was worried and she was like, why are you worried? It doesn't really matter. I, I don't know exactly what happened. And I was like, finally, she's actually showing some real acting chops in mm-hmm. that sequence. Now, I don't know if she was just like, she was sick of being there and it just came <laughs> off. And, you know, he throwing, caught, caught her at a really good time. <laughs> it was like, ah, oh, fuck this movie. But, you know, I thought that that scene was actually really good. But you're right. I mean, there are certain sequences where you can't really understand, you know, she, she, she basically lowers her eyelids just a little bit to show that she's under this spell. <laughs> right. And you're like, you just look half asleep. Can you just like maybe widen your eyes a little bit, show that you're not blinking or something like that, that you're mesmerized. But no, yeah, you're right. It, it was, it was weird. It was a weird performance. Yeah. Weird. I, I think you brought up the perfect word for it earlier, which is just uneven. Like there, I don't think it's, I mean, I kind of came in and was just like, she's terrible, but that would be, that would be almost more impressive if she was like consistently bad. But there are moments where you're like, oh, I see what you're doing there. There's something interesting there. And then the rest yeah. of the time it was just like, no, we're all over the place here. But I think, you know, there's a reason the movie is called The Mummy. Like this is Boris Karloff's movie. And if he's not oh, yeah. great, the movie is terrible. So thank goodness they had Boris Karloff because he is just phenomenal in this role. 
you know, maybe maybe the reason why you know Zeta looks so much better in certain sequences is because Karloff's not there and she's mm. acting opposite manners, who's terrible. Right. Yeah. So it's maybe, a comparison maybe base. Maybe it just it's... brings a, you know, you see these steps, you know, Karloff, then Zeta, then Manners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> manners all the way down. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> not great. All right. All right. Sorry, David's family out there. Well, anyway, we love you. Yeah, I'm sure they're all listening. Yeah. I'm really, oh, really, really scared of that. Uh, Don't underestimate your shows. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's, let's talk about the writing. Let's talk about uh, the script here. Um, I, I thought one really interesting choice is that we have that first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie that we talk about, which I just absolutely love. Uh, and instead of continuing that story, we jump to that guy's son. Uh, I think, what is it? Like 10 years later, um, so yep. we have kind of this, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like a James Bond opening where we have an opening that's almost, almost not quite connected to the story we're going to tell. Like it's connected, of course, because of the mummy, uh, because of the father and son dynamic. But I found it interesting that, cause I actually really liked the characters in the opening sequence. Like I, I didn't have any fault with their performance. Even the, even the tremendous overacting of he went for a walk, like the guy who goes crazy. It's still an entertaining, yeah, you like that? Okay. it's still an entertaining moment. Like I, I, a lot of it I chalk up to the time. Like, I'm just like, oh, this right. is what they thought people look like when they cracked up. Like, okay, that's fine. Uh, and it's way <laughs> over the top, but it does, it does hammer home this point that this guy has seen something that he can't handle. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's enough for me. So what did you think of the choice of kind of, subverting the idea of a standard narrative plot and just randomly jumping ahead 10 years in time. I haven't thought about it. I'll think about it right now, but I think that going 10 years, I would have liked to see what the hell Imhotep was up to during that 10 years. Yes. You know, it's a very interesting prologue, obviously. I mean, I, I think, okay, here's what I think then. I think it's interesting to see just how much archaeology lost you know, in terms of interest in that 10 year period, because you have these two guys at the beginning of the film, they're just super interested and invested in finding all this stuff and they're happy. And then you go 10 years later, you have his son that is like, ah, you know, <laughs> it's just dirt sucks. Yeah. It sucks <laughs> being an archeologist. We're just digging holes. And you're like, well, Jesus Christ, why the hell did you pick that job? So right. That's that kind of a big part of that job. <laughs> exactly. Like, you're playing in the sand, buddy. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I I always like it when you have that opening prologue. I mean, look look what Christopher Nolan's been doing with his films, mm. and it's exactly what it is. You'll have this True. this setup, this, this initial setup, and then we'll go at a, at a specific point in time. Um, and so I think in terms of narrative structure, I think it's a very good introduction because it leaves you wanting more. And then you go into that ten year period after that. When you show up, you're like, well, well shit, what has happened in that ten year period? Where the hell is the mummy? And then when he shows up, you actually start questioning yourself, is that the guy? Right. And so it kind of keeps that mystery going a little bit until you start noticing the same traits on the face. Right. And you're like, that's him. Why doesn't anybody notice that this is, you know, a bizarre looking man? Right. Now, obviously, the black and white plays onto us. I would like to see just what he looks like in terms of, like, the color of his skin. Right. Is it going to be a little bit, you know... um, 
Is it gangly? Mm-hmm. In, you know, as a sense of, is the off blue Day of the Dead style? Right. You know, so I don't know exactly what that, what, what he would look like. And I would have liked to see a little bit of color. But I mean, if you look at it in black and white, you clearly see that this guy has a lot of experience. He's aged mm-hmm. and there's a lot of lines on his face. So perhaps, <laughs> you know, but I would have liked to see what that 10 year period is. I don't have any trouble with the prologue yeah, I, being that way. I, I agree that I, I wish I had gotten to see the, the in between. And it makes me wonder how much of that is just due to, you know, how much makeup effects, uh, they could afford to use. Cause I, I know like kind of looking up, like it took a lot of work to get the two, the kind of two versions of the mummy we get. So I'm sure like the in between would be even more difficult. Uh, but I would have also have loved to see that. I think that would have been, that would have been a lot of fun. Cause there is, there is that like, you know, he finally convinces these people to, to dig where he wants them to dig. Uh, but you know, did he try to convince other people in the 10 years previous and it just didn't work out or was he taking a nap? Like what's, what's going on? Was he building up funds, building up money so he could survive? I don't, I, and it makes me wonder like what, what was going on there? But one thing I love about this script, we talked about the flashback sequence and I love how long the movie takes to really get to that because it had to be tempting to give your, your main actor in Boris Karloff, easily the best actor on the screen, a bunch of monologues in this movie because you know he can deliver and you know he can make people care. But again, it's that withholding, just like that opening scene is like, we're not going to tell you the whole story until we have to. So I think pacing wise, this script and granted, it's really interesting when you watch these old movies because, you know, they're 70 to 80 minutes long. And yet really feel like they take their time to get to where they're going. And this is one of those movies too. And I think it's because he holds back until he's, and he holds back until there's a reason to tell that story. To, when he finally, when an Oxana Moon is, is finally there and he can finally kind of give her her personal history. I love that the script holds back until that moment. Yeah. I mean, because if you look at the writing, it's essentially a Romeo and Juliet story one-sided yes clearly this guy's romeo (laughs) and he's looking for his juliet so i i agree that withholding that information just to show how close they were together and what he's trying to build to is essentially the 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 crux of the entire story if we get that right off the bat then he just becomes a creep right right he's a stalker becomes this stalker guy (laughs) so to avoid that and to make it a little bit more romantic it gives you a little bit of uh a weight to, to not only Karloff's performance, but it gives a little bit of weight to the story. When you get there, you're like, oh shit, this guy's been suffering for so much time yep. that he's ready to do anything, you know, to quell that. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, th- I agree that, that it came in at the perfect moment. It, what is it? At the end of act two? Yeah. Most likely, pretty much. Beginning of act three. Yeah. Yeah. So like the, this, the two thirds of the film is over at this point, And then you're like, oh man, this is terrible. Right. Not only is he condemned to kind of, you know, he's been buried alive, but it's also because he's 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 got a broken heart. Right, poor guy. You know, and so I know it, it just added to the empathy, in my opinion. So everybody was like, "Clear out, die, you crazy fucks!" I want this guy to finally get his wife. So right, <laughs> it been yeah, thing. it's another another example of us rooting for rooting for the bad guy in this movie. The yeah. guy who's just causing heart attacks and killing people left and right. We're still like, but. But he loves her. It's fine. Yeah. Let, let, let the guy live. He's, he's all right. Uh, the only, know, one of the only things I, I thought of that I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble deciding if I want to see this or not. Sometimes we have questions about a movie and you're like, Oh, I want to know this. And then I wonder if that ruins it. Like we never get a real idea of 
what the mummy's powers are. Like we know, like he does these, he does these things, he makes these kills, you know, he uses these curses, but we never, we don't have it. So it becomes a thing where he could do anything and we would just kind of have to accept it. And I'm not sure if that's positive or negative. There's a cool side to that, that like the possibilities are endless when he's threatening people. The other side, the, um, the negative side of that is like, okay, what is this creature? And especially because I went into this not expecting a romance, but expecting right. a monster movie. And usually this stuff gets set up in these type of movies. So I'm a little bit torn on what I would have wanted to see. Um, I, I don't know if this was common knowledge at the time, but anyway, I did a bit of research to understand a little bit of why they would have chosen the specific character names for this one. Hmm. And, and I looked up Im- Imhotep. And who he was in, in Egyptian, uh, well, well, Egyptian mythology or Egyptian history, and he was a physician. He was a medicine man, mm. and so because a lot of the script has to do with the corruption of the soul, the idea of this subversion, you'll have a medicine man who's supposed to be a healer of the people, mm. but then after that, he actually starts using his powers but for personal gain. Oh, interesting. And so I thought that if you're looking at it from a monster perspective, it makes it really, really interesting for him to not necessarily be a medicine man for the people, but a medicine man for himself. And so he's using the powers to kill in order, as opposed to save lives in this case. And so with the historical perspective of Imhotep, I thought it was kind of cool that we don't necessarily get you know, the, 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 the outline of what his powers were, but in history, they're actually going for the opposite hmm. because of this 3,700 year gap of his suffering where he's like, no, you guys are done. I'm <laughs> Fuck the people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's my turn. You guys took something away from me. I'll take something away from you. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I wish, uh, I wish that had been actually information that was included in the movie or that I had going in. Cause right. I think that's an interesting, interesting take on things. And I, I think it's also interesting that this is, this is also a movie that was written in response to things that were going on in the world that like, this is yeah. right when all the kind of Egypt mania was happening. Like we, had, I think mm-hmm. like the, the Tutankhamun uh, unveiling had happened and people were really excited about ancient Egypt. So it was really smart that they're like, Oh, you like Egypt? Have we got a movie for you? Like that's, that's here <laughs> you go. And I think despite the, and sometimes when a movie is done in reaction to what's going on in the world, you end up with a bad movie. You end up with something that's like, Oh, this is just because people, we're liking this right now this is not good but i think it really the script really and everything else here really holds up even now like yes the pacing is a little bit off uh because it's an older movie like you're gonna get some of the acting is presentational in style and not great but i think as a movie as a narrative structure i think it really holds up even now in 2017 oh definitely i mean i don't know if at the time they were really aware of the colonizer versus colonized discourse that is at the heart of the film right you know the british do come off as arrogant you know even like the scene that we were talking about in the beginning where he's like uh why are we here in these egyptian ruins you know you have that 10 year period where maybe perhaps this is where it's no longer popular right and they're still digging in these ruins no matter like what the people think they don't care anymore and so i thought that was interesting there i also noticed like in the writing that they had these um uh they they mixed up a god you know i was looking up you know at one point you have this white cat yes it'll just scurry off the screen and then you'll see that the he the cat killed the dog and so i basically look you know up who bast was and you know and i realized that she's a you know protective goddess so 
I was confused when Imhotep says that she has to kill again because if she's the goddess of protection, why is she killing? It doesn't make any Unless sense. Unless she's killing so, to protect Egyptian yeah, culture, maybe. I don't know. But there's that. There's, I don't know. But I, I it, feel like they confused it with Sekhmet. Right. Sekhmet was the one with the lion's head. Right. And so she was the goddess of evil, you know, and so then you had Anubis and Anpu, the god of uh, the embalming and the protector of the dead, you know, so the dog essentially being that. I like that little inclusion. So I don't know. I think that there's a lot going on in terms of where this movie wants to go, uh, like what you were talking about, you know, in terms of history when it came out and is trying to kind of shoot a bunch of stuff at the screen. Remember these names that we talked right. about? You know, Bast, you know, Bast, you learned that in high school now. <laughs> Exactly. You know, it was on TV the other day, you know, the cat head. Well, we've got the dog in there too. So Exactly. I think the one thing I wish this movie didn't have, which is which it does, and I have to again chalk it up to the period of time, but we have we have a character in blackface in this movie. We have like the the Nubian servant uh who basically is one of the first people to come under the spell uh of our mummy, which is a little unfortunate watching it watching it now. Uh that like of course that's the one who is quote unquote like the the mentally weakest, the one who comes under the spell the quickest and it's a, and it's first. yeah and it's a brute force and everything else that goes along with it so i just have to like i was watching it with my wife and like we were like we we're really enjoying it and she was like oh fuck of course yeah, yeah. we have to have the Same blackface reaction. yeah and i totally agreed it's on it's the one thing in the movie that really um strikingly doesn't hold up in a way that's kind of painful to watch because everything else is done so well. Uh but other than that, I think the the script is really great and it's and it's a really enjoyable movie. Um but let's skip to the part that really stuck out in my mind uh more than any of these sections, which is the production value. I was so wowed by the makeup in this movie, like I was just stunned. Yeah. Because sometimes when you watch older movies and you see the makeup you mentioned theater, like theater style films. And a lot of times you have theater style makeup, which is designed to be seen in the back row because they hadn't figured out what, uh, what up close look like on a camera yet. There wasn't that much practice, that many years of, of knowing what this looked like. But the close up makeup of the mummy in that opening scene is, yeah. is flawless. Like it doesn't look like, it looks like a mummy is on screen. I actually like this better than the views of the mummy I've seen in more modern movies that have all the benefit of CGI and special effects. Like, I adore this look. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah, but they they say it. I mean, a little goes a long way sometimes. And I mean, people are overblowing a lot of the things that are going out. Just look at the trailer for the new Tom Cruise film. Mm -hmm. I mean, the mummy, yeah, all right. She's got the hieroglyphs like on her body and stuff like that. But at the same time, you can't help but think, that's a little on the nose. Guys. Right. You know? <laughs> You're just but, I mean, writing you on your own off, face, like what? It, what exactly. is happening? Like I'm just gonna carve it in, <laughs> you know. But Karloff, I mean, the makeup that they did use looks fantastic. I remember when I was sitting there just in my living room the other day rewatching it, and I was like, "Look at that! It looks great because it looks like he he, he basically has this old skin. It looks like it's covered in sand. Mm -hmm. It looks also very delicate. It looks yes. like it could possibly just rip like or flake off at, at the earliest, yeah." yeah. And so, yeah, that was great. But I'll be honest. I mean, that was the only thing that I thought was really captivating about the production value because the rest looks really cheap. Yeah. You know, probably because like it was. The, I like, <laughs> I, I like the sets, you know, but the one thing that did stick out to me that made me like kind of laugh out loud when I was watching it was, uh, the casket scene mm -hmm. that Ardeth <laughs> Bay explains when he was buried alive. Those two guys that are putting the lid mm -hmm. 
on top are clearly lifting this styrofoam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> so clearly. It's supposed to be a slab of rock, and you're like, dude, can't you put a... This is supposed to be really heavy, guy. Right. And he's just pushing it over like, like you're... Like, can like, you grit your teeth or something? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I totally... You're all, you're <laughs> I definitely had that um, moment, for sure. But I think the... It's, it's interesting, too, going back to the makeup for just a second, is that you have yep. two very distinct looks. You have the mummy and you have Ardith Bay. Uh, and, right. and they look very different, but you can, as you mentioned, like when you see his face, you, you can tell this is the same person. Uh, so I think, yeah. you know, both of those and, you know, some of that's directing to the way those shots are lit with the kind of almost glowing around the eyes and we really get to like zoom in and it, it shows actually a lot of confidence in the makeup too that like, oh, yeah. oh you like the makeup? We are going to put the camera in his face and we're going to show you every, uh, every bit of that, that which could really, which could really backfire. If the, if the makeup isn't great, like if it doesn't read as an actual person's face and it just reads his makeup, that's going to be hard to look at. But he goes, he goes back to it a bunch. I think the, the one thing that really stood out, uh, as far as bad production value is in the very beginning, like the kind of very obvious use of miniatures, uh, as we, as we kind of go into that opening sequence where you're just like, huh, and especially when you've seen movies set, uh, in this area before that are new, that they have actually like built sets, it does stand out, but you also understand like, it was 1932, you know, they probably didn't have, it is kind of a B movie, it's a monster movie, so they're not right. gonna have a bunch of money, but one thing I really liked is, in the flashback sequence, the way that is framed, I love that it looks like you're looking at another screen. Um, yeah. Like, essentially, he's like, you know, granted, not with this technology, but he's essentially showing her home videos of his death. Like, that's, that's yeah. what it looks like to me. And it puts us in the mindset of Anox on a Moon. Like, we are watching it as she is watching. It's being unveiled to her as it's being unveiled to us. So I like that it's yeah. specifically framed in that manner. I, I really like that too. And I don't want to get into the favorite scenes just yet because that, that's part of my favorite scenes. I thought it was great. Uh, because even like the, the usage of the pool itself, I mean, is very, very, uh, contradictory mm -hmm. in th the film. You know, you'll actually see Ardeth Bay use it to either kill one person, try to kill another person, but also to unveil his love for, yeah. you know, Helen. And, and it's so, a rebirth thought, too, like it's a death exactly. and a rebirth, yeah. And so I thought it was really very well done. I like the fact that on my screen you could see those those little edges, uh -huh. yeah. You know, the, you know the fact that Frond was like, "How do we make? How do we make them understand that we're looking inside the water?" Yes. <laughs> Instead of having just the waves come up uh, uh, as a cross dissolve, right. that probably other productions would have done. He just decides, oh, "I'm going to put a frame around it, mm -hmm. and we'll just film using a frame. We'll just put that in yeah. shot, and it should be interesting." Uh, so, yeah, definitely, I, I really like that. Although it does look cheap, it's an old cheap trick. Yeah. But I mean, if it ain't broke, don't you know? Yeah. If it ain't, uh, yeah, if it ain't broke, don't, don't, don't fix don't, it. Don't, yeah. There you go. Totally I was looking great. for it. There it is. Told you my sleeping pills, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So actually, you we're actually going to move into favorite scenes right now. Um, so what is one of your favorite scenes? Is it tied to that kind of that pool sequence? Well, yeah, the that that one, yeah. I, the introduction of the mummy. Oh. You know, at the beginning of the film, yes. the camera work is so good. Uh, they don't reveal the mummy walking 
you know, right away instead of just showing like these ribbons slowly leaving. I, I thought that was so good. Mm-hmm. I was in for a treat after that because I, it just got me so excited to see it. And it actually uh, reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I, there's one movie I can't think of that does that. The only one that's popping into my head right now is Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. When you see like Batman going through all the containers mm-hmm. before we actually get to see him full front with uh, Carm- Carmine Falcone. You know, when he's just basically kicking the ass out of these, you know, kicking these guys' ass. And, and Nolan just decides not to reveal the Batman. He waits for another time. So I thought it was really interesting. I love it when a director just teases you with that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that was great. And obviously, yes, the pool scene, I like how efficiently shot those were. Uh, when Imhotep is giving those guys heart attacks, and even when he's explaining his life to Helen that was so good. I, I really wanted a, a lot more. I didn't want more heart attacks, but I really wanted more. <laughs> Who doesn't? More. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was fun. You know, he, you know, Freund was, was confident enough in what he was doing that he just shows Imhotep basically with his arms crossed across, across his chest. Like he's actually mummified at that mm-hmm. moment in time. Then he just moves the camera down and we, we know, okay, this is where we're headed. We're headed inside the pool. And we're actually going to see what the hell this guy's doing. And then with the hand out, you know, um, j- just like in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, right. you know, with the heart. I thought it was really, really good. So, yeah, those scenes are definitely well done, well shot. And I think that those are probably the ones that he spent the most time blocking. Yes. You know, and so, yeah, th- those were great. I-, I-, I love those scenes very, very much. Yeah, I mean, I-, I think obviously we've talked a lot about that opening scene, but I think it really is the crowning achievement of the movie, which yeah, is yeah. almost a shame because the rest of the movie pales in comparison a little bit mm-hmm. when you open that strong. Uh, but I'm glad you mentioned the heart, a- heart attack sequence because that's actually one of my favorite moments in the film because right. everything else, all of his other evil actions kind of happen in shadow and we never really get to see what he's doing. Yeah. So I think we need that threat. We need that understanding that this is this is not only like a scary mummy, but this is a being with power that we don't understand. So I like I like that that was included. And I think if you if you remake this movie, as they've done two or three times now, you have you have a lot more of that, which I think which I think helps. I think it it gives even more of a sense of worry and a sense of a sense of evil to this character that we probably don't get in this movie like that's it's really the only weakness of the movie is how ardently we are rooting for the mummy over these human characters yeah. who are being picked off one by one yeah i i agree i mean it's just so much fun but i mean it's all in karloff's performance yes. isn't it yes you know when he just drags you in it feels like when he's handing when he, when his hands out it's he is trying to kill someone but it's also it acts as an invitation yeah. look at what i'm doing you know and so I don't know. I was immediately drawn into those sequences. I thought they were really well done. Even in the flashback sequence, mm-hmm. the, you know, the whole costumes that are there, everything that, that's there is so beautifully acted. I thought it was great. Even the scene where, you know, the spears are being thrown and there's this guy that has a spear through the chest. I was pretty impressed I, I, by I, that, actually. Exactly. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. I was like, geez, that looks really good. Yeah, it's not some guy so, carrying a spear under his arm and pretending like arm, it stabbed exactly. him. It's like, it looks like it's gone through yeah. his chest on both sides and there's some blood. And I was like, wow, for 1932, yeah. that's actually pretty impressive. So <laughs> it was like, yeah, people are like, they up the gore for this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So let's move into the theme of devotion. So I, I kind of gave you this theme as you were watching the movie. So how did you think it it impacted uh, the movie. How do you think devotion tied in? 
Well, obviously, there's the love story. You know, uh, three thousand seven hundred years uh, wanting to to rekindle his love for this one person. You know, he, who he figures is his soulmate. But I mean, that one's the obvious one yes. to me. The one that I liked a lot was the devotion to one's ancestry. You know, so you have Imhotep who doesn't want to dig up the remains because it's against what his beliefs are. You're not supposed to go into, uh, uh, you know, dig up the the remains of of um, you know all the well, the, the 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 how can you call them the um, the kings of old, if mm-hmm. you will. And so he basically is trying to get people to do that work for him, so that way at least his soul will be absolved. Of doing that and going against his his um, his own beliefs, and so I thought that him trying to uphold that, you know, even the scripture and whatnot, even mm-hmm. going as far as to using his powers, you know, they are corrupted in a sense, but he is still using what he has, and I think it goes along the lines of being able to, you know, keep his his ancestry but keep his beliefs in line you know whole egyptian mythology is not myth to him right that's his actual truth and so being able to kind of keep his culture alive through what he's doing what thought was very interesting to actually want to put that in the character yeah man i'm so glad you brought that up because it, it's something that i didn't think of as i was watching the movie you kind of told me before we started recording that this is yeah. the angle you were taking uh and i love that i love that idea of uh not only the devotion but the loophole it makes me think there are there's some uh, some segments of the Jewish faith where there are certain times where they're not allowed to use electricity. So, but the loophole is you can ask a person not of that faith, "Can you go turn on that light?" Like that's right. so that's like kind of your loophole here. So I love that. <laughs> and there's even um, there's even some lines in here. You talk about devotion to culture, and I think also devotion to his culture at that time. It's not just Egyptian culture yeah. throughout. There's all these discussions of like this is not the Cairo that I knew this is, this is different. I don't like it. I'm trying to bring things back to how they were. So he is truly devoted to that culture and that time. He is in a lot of ways, a man out of time. Like he has figured out how to interact in the 1920s, 1930s, but he really is still, you know, almost 4,000 years ago. And he's devoted to that time. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't, he doesn't, touch people like he's he like you know yep. moves himself back when someone tries to touch him or shake his hand mm-hmm. uh, because these people are not of his time and not of his culture and i absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. love that but one thing i also wanted to talk about is kind of the the negative side of devotion like yes he is truly devoted to an exana moon to this woman and there are moments yeah. as you're watching it, you're like that's that's kind of sweet that he is so in love with her and he was willing not only to give up his own life, but his own afterlife and everything else right. that goes along with it to be with this woman. But look at what he puts the world through because of his devotion. And we, oh, and yeah. the way this movie is structured, we don't know anything about her, like why he loves her other than the fact that he just does. So it's, right. so we just see in a lot of ways, especially if the movie had been structured in a different way, we just see, as you mentioned, this kind of creepy stalker who's been stalking this woman's corpse for 4,000 years. And we're just like, <laughs> man, this is a little rough to watch. And I think it's something <laughs> interesting to think about that we think about devotion. That word has a very positive connotation. But it also, if you're yeah, completely but... devoted to someone or something, you don't you don't allow them to be human, to make mistakes, to change. Because, like, no, everything you do is perfect. You're an ox on a moon. And that's super, super unhealthy. So I think it's interesting to kind of look at that relationship as almost – he's not really having a relationship with this woman. He's having a relationship with the idea, with the memory of this woman. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, and it could act as a metaphor. I was just thinking while you were talking as well. It could act for a metaphor as uh, of how the elderly are treated in mm. society today, if you will. You know, if you bring up a, a, a situation where this this man, that's the only thing he has left is his devotion to this one person. And he's ready to give it all up to at least have, you know, a fraction of what he used to be living at a moment in time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... You know, you'll, you'll constantly, I mean, if we sit down, even like sometimes I'll be talking to my father and this is not a knock on him, but he'll say something and I'll be like, yeah, shit, man, things have changed so much since the time like that. And so I feel like, you know, I don't think my father's a mummy. (laughs) Well, that's what I took. (laughs) But I'm just saying that, I mean, I'm using his and him as as an example of of someone who basically, you know, would, would, you know, he's a guy that is able to move forward with time, but obviously time is catching up with him and things are going to change. Mm -hmm. And so I think Ardeth Bay, you know, being symbolic of someone who's actually elderly, someone that can't necessarily let go of the past, who wants to preserve what he used to believe could actually be a really interesting metaphor Mm -hmm. for how we see elderly in society today. Nice. Awesome. All right. Uh, I think that's, that's it for the theme. The last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, with my, you know, it's so original. I thought like the mummy's coming out. I'm going to cover the mummy and the mummy. Uh, so this new 2017 version, it's interesting to talk to you about this because one, I know you're a big Tom Cruise fan and two, you haven't yes, seen the, the, uh, the, the mummy with Brendan Fraser. Uh, so what are your feelings after seeing this trailer? Are you excited for this movie to come out or are you only excited because it's a Tom Cruise movie? Uh, I'm going to see it cause it's Tom Cruise. I mean, this is mission impossible, you know, uh, cultural heresy. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to, I would watch that movie. That's... <laughs> and so I think that that's what it is right now where you're like, okay, guys, I think you're going a little too far into, misappropriating what this what what you know egyptian mythology is about and and you're taking a story that is uh you know we've we've told this story a little bit to death i mean it is a romeo and juliet but this one's a revenge story so we've got the kill bill element in there now (laughs) and so i don't know i'm gonna see it but i mean it isn't it just tom cruise running away from shit again (laughs) it it quite possibly i don't get tired of that So I don't get tired of that. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to see it. Although I have my fingers crossed that after that plane crash that we see in the trailer, we realize that when she says, oh, she has something in special special in store for you, that it's going to be revealed somewhere down the line that this guy's actually Van Helsing. And so he's going to be tying this whole universe together. So I have my fingers oh, crossed boy. that this is what, where that's going. Um, although, I mean, I have practically zero interest in seeing the film. I have to do my my duty to cruise and I have to go see it. <laughs> and which is cool because my, my mother-in-law, uh, she gave me a belated uh, birthday gift, which is two cinema tickets. Oh, perfect. You know? So I'm like, yes, I free. get to see cruise and exactly <laughs> not have to pay for it. So they're guilt aside. Bye-bye. <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it just for the, the dumb schlocky movie it's going to be i'm not my expectations are right down the toilet Mm. i don't care okay i'm actually really looking forward to this movie uh but (laughs) according like if if you look at like you know social media probably more than uh most other people and i think the reason i'm looking forward to is i'm noticing something interesting with tom cruise and his action movies especially you take out the two recent jack reacher movies but if you look at mission impossible rogue nation you look at edge of tomorrow and you look at this he seems to be taking a little bit, not a backseat, but maybe a side seat to female action heroes. Um, and I like that. I love that he is – and you know Tom Cruise at this point, if he wanted to, 
he could get anything he wanted to greenlit. I think he's still at that point where, like, it's Tom Cruise. We'll give it a shot, even if we don't think it's a good idea. You know, we can put him on this movie, and he sells overseas. So if he didn't want— really? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, especially overseas. Maybe not as much here. Um, but the fact that he's taken a side seat to these female protagonists and antagonists I think is kind of cool. And I think we're getting that again here with Sofia Boutella uh, playing the mummy. I like the fact that our villain, instead of being your standard male— uh, Imhotep, we have we have a female character in that role instead, yeah. and it's going to be interesting how that changes things uh, because they certainly, at least from the trailers, did not shy away from still making the female mummy, you know, with less clothing and kind of sexy looking. Like they didn't, you know, it's not like they they covered her in rags like they did in you know like they did Boris Karloff. You know, he's Boris Karloff right. is not exactly wearing you know form fitting clothing in this movie, whereas Sofia Motilla definitely is wearing much less clothing. Um, so so it's going to be interesting to see how they handle the kind of the gender interactions and is it still a love story is she trying to revive her husband or her male lover or is it purely just you've awakened the mummy and you know it's a revenge story and let's let's hit the ground running so it's i'm interested to see what they do with this and how they're going to try and tie this in with this whole universal monsters thing that they're doing like russell yeah. crowe is playing uh, dr jekyll in this movie so that's going to be it looks like the connective tissue between all these He's movies. playing himself yeah. that's awesome yeah. <laughs> exactly so it'll be it'll be interesting i'm looking forward to it but like you said i think it's a movie that is designed to kind of be a high budget b movie it's supposed to be schlocky it's supposed to be action-based and it's mm. not going to win any awards but it should be fun so that's that's what i'm looking for oh definitely i mean i i don't think that i'm going to dislike this film you see it in the trailers what it they're selling you exactly what it is yep. So, I mean, if you're walking in and expecting The Godfather, you're going to be sorely mistaken. <laughs> yes. Stay at the door. Go see something else. Yes. But this one looks like it's going to be just a fun action summer blockbuster. I mean, what else? It's really cool. And that's a good point that you bring up with regards to the females. I hadn't put that together, and you're 100% right. Cruz is actually entering the mentor phase yep. of his acting career right now, which is why probably Top Gun 2 is greenlit yep. recently, where he can actually be the Tom Skerritt character. Yes. You know, and so, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, no, nah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I got a little bit of a John Wick 2 vibe mm. coming from The Mummy. And in the sense that the um, the sister and brother in John Wick 2, you know, he basically wants um, – I don't remember the guy's name anyway. He was a shitty actor. And so <laughs> he basically wants to have his sister killed because mm -hmm. his father wanted to give her – her place at the table on the high whatever in, in, in John Wick 2. So I have a feeling that that's a little bit of what the story might be mm. with the mummy, you know, the Sophia Butella character where she's been cheated out of power mm. and she's just going to go back and exact revenge on everyone who conspired against her. So that could be cool. Yeah. It's it's a Kill Bill story in Egypt. But with mythology. magic. So, so there you awesome. go all right uh so that's it uh for this episode why don't you tell people one more time maybe how they can contact you on twitter and how they can listen to your great show uh once again thanks again to dave for inviting me over i always love this show this is the first show i tune in to for the week so thanks again you can find me uh, jason michael at atlantic sc on twitter and you can find lee brady my co-host at big pick reviews like I said, the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast is uh, found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
radio. I don't know what else. Google Play. Everywhere. No one's been there yet. <laughs> everywhere. I, I think it's everywhere. Now, I, I don't know how feeds work. <laughs> so it should be good. Uh, like I said, the most recent episode is the one on Alien Covenant. So if you're looking for another take, then fuck this movie. Come see us. We've got it for you. Uh, we really looked at uh, really interesting themes. Uh, I talked to Dave about it. Dave is usually one of our biggest cheerleaders, and he was like, "Yeah, he says you read a little bit too much into this one." <laughs> so I had but a it's fun still time fun. talking with it's. It is. It's a, it's a really fun one. So yeah, I had a great time. Check out our episode on the skin. And if you're looking for a very uh, arrogant and pretentious version of Atlantic Screen Connection, check out our Fate of the Furious episode. You won't Okay, thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So the next time you hear me, we will be doing our new release review of The Mummy with my wife, Britt. And if you'd like to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that, of course. Keep listening, tell your friends, go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like The Last New Wave and War Machine vs. Warhorse. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study or donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. All right. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. I'm hopelessly devoted to oh, I love it. Yeah. There's only one thing I forgot to mention was that how uh, Coppola's Dracula seems to have taken from the mummy mm. more than from the Dracula story. Oh, very true. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But yeah. And I fucking love that movie. Like, warts and all. Like, there's a lot of people who hate on Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Like, Keanu Reeves is... Oh, I love it, man. Keanu Reeves is movie. bad in that movie. And that's true. Like, Keanu Reeves is definitely the weak link. But I just love how how fucking balls-to-the-wall crazy that movie is. That, like, we'll have fountains of blood shooting out of crosses. And, like, it's just like... Yeah. This is, this is where we're gonna go. All right. I like it. I love yeah. it. Like... And even the, the vampire at the end is so terrifying. Yes. I mean, every time... I, I think I have a love-hate relationship with the film where I, I'll block out everything that has to do with Keanu Reeves yeah. and then I put it on. Oh, I'm like, yeah. oh shit, that's right. He's in yep. this. And then totally. you'll have What's-Her-Name trying to make, you know, have this weird accent. Oh, <laughs> like, don't do that. Writer. Yeah, it's... To the end. That's what I intend.